Good morning, Manitou Springs. How is everybody? All 18 of us. We're doing it. Jesus said wherever two or three or 18 are gathered in his name that something good would happen. So, hey, it's good to see you this morning. My name is Andrew, um, one of the teaching pastors at New Life. I serve mainly with our Friday night congregation, but then teach wherever else they need me. And uh, it's such a joy to be with you this morning. Um, you may or may not be aware the reason Pastor Joe is not here is Erica Kirkendall's grandmother Maxine passed away last week. And their youngest son, Max, is af- actually named after Grandma Maxine. So they're up at the Boundary Waters, Duluth, Minnesota, way up north. It's like 400 degrees below zero up there. And, uh, but they're sad that they couldn't be here with you this morning. Joe asked me to fill in for him. And I'm grateful to do that. I'm going to be in Psalm 22 this morning. So if you have Bibles, I'll invite you to open them to Psalm 22. We're also going to stand in just a moment here uh, and read it. You know, we planned out, I preached on Psalm 22 at our Friday night community this past Friday night. And um, it kind of just sort of worked out this way. We had planned that weeks ago that we were going to be in this content. And if you know the scriptures very well at all, you know that some of the Psalms are um, sunny and bright and wonderful and really comforting. And others of the Psalms kind of push you in a direction that maybe you wouldn't have gone unless the Psalm pulled you there. And Psalm 22 is one of those Psalms. And I think actually it's really appropriate that we're in this Psalm this morning. Um, Most of you that are here are probably aware of the tragedy that happened in our community this week. Yesterday at the New Life North campus, um, we commemorated the life of Deputy um, Detective uh, Micah Flick. And uh, there was so much emotion in the room and so much pain and so much joy, too. There was just all of the humanness was there. And this psalm is one of those psalms that gives us access to that and permission to, to be that, to be fully human in the presence of God. So I've got a couple comments that I want to push your way that I think will help you understand that. And then we'll come to the table of the Lord together. Sound good? So we're going to read the scripture in just a moment. But before we do that, let's just pray. Just rest, would you? Just rest in God's presence. You know, we wouldn't have to say another word this morning. We could just be in the stillness and all the needs would be met. Because <laughs> God is active. Because God is moving. Holy Spirit, just like you hovered over the waters of chaos, like you hovered over Israel in exile, like you hovered over the dead body of the Lord. So you hover over us. And the moment is pregnant with life. And we're grateful. We're looking to you. The psalmist said, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail me, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Would you be that, Lord? We need you. We need you. We're asking that as we come to the scriptures this morning, that they would would burst with new life and hope and possibility, and that we would find them to be spacious, that the scripture would be a space for us to come and discover how much it is true that in you we live and move and have our being. So come, Lord, we need you. We need you. We're asking this morning that the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, 
O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, let's stand together. And the scripture, I think, will be on the screen here. So let's, um, if you have Bibles, hang on to them. But let's look up at the screen here, if you can, and let's say it together. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. This is the word of the Lord, and all God's people said, thanks be to God. You can be seated. Somewhere in the middle of the hundredth chorus of Oh Happy Day, Psalm 22 happened. <laughs> the bottom fell out, right? We were going along pretty happily, and everything was wonderful, and we loved serving Jesus, and we woke up every day singing his mercies are new every morning. And then something happened, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are heavy words, aren't they? And you know, they were penned by the same person that penned the words of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want, says David. What a blissful image, you know? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. David knew intimacy with the Father. He knew the gentle shepherding presence of God. But for David, you know, his faith was not one note. But it was actually kind of a complex thing. And we don't have any idea what the historical circumstances are around Psalm 22. But we do know that David must have felt like he really had his back against the wall. And not just that he had his back against the wall, but that he had his back against the wall in such a way that it seemed like God had forgotten him. And so he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That Hebrew word for forsaken is the Hebrew word azav. Can I hear you say azav? azav. It actually functions in kind of a semi-technical way in the Old Testament to talk about the official severing of relationship, as if somebody served you the divorce papers. So the same guy who pens the 23rd Psalm in the 22nd Psalm is saying, did you just serve me with the divorce papers here, God? Is that what's going on in my circumstance? And you're the one that Israel praises. Our ancestors, our fathers and mothers, they trusted in you and you, you delivered them. They cried out to you and they were saved. And now here I am, 
I'm crying out to you out of the same tradition and the same faith as my fathers and mothers, but you're not answering me. By day I cry out to you. By night I am not silent. Where have you gone? And he says, just so you know, I want you to remember, God, that you're the one who's responsible for me. You got me involved with you in the first place. All right, so I didn't come looking for you. You came looking for me. You brought me out of my mother's womb and you made me trust in you. I wouldn't have done that by myself, but you planted the seeds of faith in my heart, made me trust in you at my mother's breast. And now what? Now what? Now everybody's making fun of me. I'm trying to be faithful to you. They think I'm an idiot and, and, and I can't detect a trace of your presence anymore in my life. So if you don't show up and shred these divorce papers, light them on fire and restore relationship with me and come to my rescue, I'm in a world of hurt. Are you with me this morning? Yeah. Psalm 22 is a pretty radical thing. I, um, and in some ways, it's an affront to the way that we normally think about the emotional range that is permitted to us as people of faith. Here's a question I want to ask you this morning. Ponder this one for a little bit. You can put the first slide up on the screen. What's your understanding of the nature of your relationship with God? What's the nature, your understanding of the nature of your relationship with God? I've been in the church all my life, and from what I can tell, there are a couple of ditches that Christians normally fall into when they think about their relationship with God. Some people tend to think about their relationship with God like this, that God is a sort of genie in a bottle. Is that how you think about your relationship with God? God is a religious token or trinket that you fit into your life as you currently know it and as your life as you currently desire it. And God is there to kind of come to your rescue and things fall apart. So, right? God, God, I need more money now. God goes, okay, right? God, my body hurts. God takes care of it. Some people think about God that way. And we live, this is 2018, so we live in an on-demand culture. <laughs> and what we want is an on-demand God, right? And I have a smart TV at my house. Any of you have smart TVs? So you can get like Netflix on there and Amazon and all the amazing stuff. And when I turn on my TV to get to the smart part of it, it will actually tell me, just wait a moment. It'll say, your TV has to like warm up to prepare for the, and I go, but that's on demand stuff. And you're telling me I got to wait, what, 30 seconds? <laughs> Come on, let's go. The sense of entitlement that we have in 2018 is pretty profound. And for a lot of us, we fit God into that sense of entitlement. That God is there just to show up to make our lives better, or to do something nice for us, or to give us fuzzy feelings when we need fuzzy feelings, right? That's God. You see what that does to our relationship with God? Who does it put in the position of power? Us. It imbalances it that way. Makes God a sort of passive player in the little game that we have going on. So some people think about God as the genie in the bottle. Other people, the pendulum goes in the other direction, they think of God more or less like fate. Fate. That God, as the master architect of human history, has intricately designed human history in all of the ways that it's exactly supposed to go so that we have no real agency or say in the matter. But we're like trains running around on the train track. And as wonderful and interesting and beautiful as the train is that goes around on the train track, it doesn't really have a choice in the matter, right? This has been a popular way of thinking about the way that the universe works and the role that God plays in the universe and what we, that's, it's been around 
from time immemorial in the first century, the church had to fend off an ancient philosophy called Stoicism. And the Stoics, the way that they believed was that the gods had basically created this totally predetermined system. And so the wise life is a life of passivity. Just accept what has happened to you and what is happening and learn to cultivate in your soul a spirit of equanimity. And that's wisdom. See what that does though, to our relationship with God? If the one imbalances it and makes God passive, this imbalances it in the other direction. It makes us totally passive. Do you know what I think is destroyed in that? Relationship in both of these. The way that the Bible understands the nature of our association with God is like this. It's full-bodied covenant relationship. Full-bodied covenant relationship. Where when God binds himself to us in covenant, he's not just giving himself to us as a religious trinket to be used when we need help. Nor is he saying, now you are my plaything for me to do whatever I want with. The mutuality is never destroyed in the biblical understanding, but in the biblical understanding, it's full mutuality of relationship at all times. And you see this all throughout the scriptural record, that there are times, because it is full-bodied covenant partnership, that God stands up in the middle of the relationship and he goes, excuse me, Israel, do you remember when I brought you up out of Egypt and I made the covenant with you at Sinai and now you guys are worshiping other gods? Hello, whatever happened to happily ever after? You and I, where, where did that go? That happens in the scriptures. But do you know that at least as often in the scriptures, Israel will stand up just like David did in Psalm 22 and they'll go, excuse me, God, do you remember the thing that happened at Sinai where you said that we were your people forever and you would bind yourself to us and you would rather not be God than not have us in relationship with you? Well, it doesn't look like you're living up to your end of the bargain, excuse me, God. And the relationship between Israel and God in the scriptures can sometimes be what only can be described as stormy. Do you know that that is okay? It's okay. Because that's the nature of real relationship. My wife Mandy and I have been married for almost 18 years. It'll be 18 years this August. So we're going on a minute or two here. And uh, we are incredible friends. And we love a relationship with each other. Just Thursday night, we went on a date with each other to P.F. Chang's at the shops at Briargate. And we went to Rocky Mountain Chocolate Factory and we wandered around and we window shopped and we tried on clothes that we had no intention of buying and we made fun of things and laughed ourselves to sleep on Thursday night. It was great. You know what I would love to be able to tell you? I would love to be able to tell you that in the 17 and a half or so years that Mandy and I have been married, that every night, before she laid her head on her pillow, that she has prayed a prayer that's gone somewhat like this. Lord God, I don't know how you did it, but you did it again. Today was even better than yesterday with Andrew Arndt. Man, I love that guy. What a stellar guy, man. Lord God, if you never did another good thing for me in my life, that you hitched my cart to that man. What a thing. I'm sure there have been a night or two like that. Probably the lion's share of the nights have been a little bit more like, my God, my God. 
If you remain silent, I will be like those who have gone down to the pit. Lord, hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help. Because marriage isn't one note. It's a complex thing. Any of you that have been married for any length of time, you know this. That there are times that you, the relationship gets crusty. I don't know. It's a theological term. <laughs> the relationship gets a little crusty. You start kind of missing each other. And if you don't fight really hard to keep short accounts with each other, you'll have these little kind of things that will sort of build up. And you start kind of getting snippy with each other. And then finally, somebody will break the silence. You're being a jerk, right? Or, or I don't like it when you do that thing. You always do that thing to me. And instantly the defensiveness comes, you know? What are you talking about? Me? A jerk? No. That thing that I always do? I don't always do that. And don't you remember in premarital counseling? They said that we can never use words like always and never. So now you're breaking the relationship here. And you, right? There's this sort of thing that happens. And finally, somebody will have the guts to say, whatever is happening in our relationship right now is not what we signed up for. We're better than this. And even more for with Mandy and I, a lot of times it'll come to this, that one of us will finally just sort of through all of the chaos with each other, somebody will just say, I just, look, this is the thing. I just miss you. I just miss you. And I feel like we're floating right past each other. And I'm willing to own what I need to own and I know you'll own what you need to own, but can we just get back to connecting? I just want you. And usually then there will be this like renewal of the relationship that will take place. And when we were first married, our first few years, we would have those, well, they're fights. <laughs> fights, sometimes bad fights. And when we were in the middle of them, those first couple of years, you know what I'd think to myself? I would like panic in my soul. I would go, oh my gosh, we're losing our marriage. Now we walk through those fights and they happen with, you know, every three or six months or so, we'll kind of have a doozy. And you know what happened now when we're in the middle of those? I go, oh, we are on the precipice of marital revival. It's about to break out up in this place. Because there's something about it. There's something about it. When you press into the conflict, when you press into the disappointment, when you press into the frustration, you also press into intimacy. And what you find is that covenant, the promise that you've made, has a way of creating this fixed point that allows the relationship as it's currently situated to sort of dissolve and then come back together again in a new and more, more coherent and more robust way. I love that woman more than I have ever loved her in my entire life. And it's precisely because we've walked through what can only be described as periods of death and resurrection in our relationship. But the reason that the death and the resurrection works is because of covenant. Holds it together. That we can look at each other and go, I don't like you very much right now. But you know what? We bound ourselves to promises in the presence of God and all those witnesses. And as sure as I live and breathe, I'm gonna keep on loving you as long as it takes. And the relationship has this way of going, it inflates again, comes back together again. Covenant is that powerful. Do you understand that that is what's happening in Psalm 22? 
is that the psalmist in saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, remember Deuteronomy 31.8, one of the most famous passages in all the scripture. Scripture says, never will he leave you, never will he what? Forsake, same word. Never will he leave you, never will he forsake you. And David here is going, you have abandoned the promises that you have made. And here is the fascinating thing about what happens in Psalm 23 is that David is never rebuked for getting all up in God's grill. The Lord doesn't show up and go, well, I never, I can't believe that you would talk to me like that. He invites it. Come to me. Come to me. Bring me your hurt. Bring me your frustration. Bring me your broken heart. Bring me your failure. Bring me your disappointment. Bring me all of it. I promise I can handle it. And our relationship is about to get better than you ever realized it could get. One of the greatest complainers in all of scripture, a man named Job. You ever read that book? Job was the most righteous man that ever lived, as the scripture describes him. And he goes through this horrible circumstance in which the hand of God is removed from him for very specific reasons, as we're told in Job chapter one and Job chapter two, although Job never knows those reasons. And so when Job is sitting in the middle of his pain and his alienation and his frustration, guys, he rages against God. How could you do this, Lord? It would have been better for me not to have been born than for me to walk through what I'm walking through right now. And where are you? Where is my righteous judge? Where is my covenant God? At one point he says in Job chapter 14 and verse 15, he says, this is how Job is experiencing his relationship with God is that God has vanished. And this is what he does. He says, one day, Lord, he like wistfully, he dreams of it again. He says, you Lord will call and I will answer you. You will long for the creature that your hands have made. Do you hear the heart of Job? Normally in the scriptures, that language is in the reverse. It's that we call and God answers us. But Job feels so alienated from the Lord that he says, I don't know what you're up to, God, but one day you're gonna remember me. You're gonna long for the creature your hands have made. And when you start calling again, Job, Job, I'm back. He says, I'll answer you at that point. The cry is for relationship. And do you know how Job is answered in the scriptures? He's never given discreet answers to his theological questions, why he suffered the way that he did. Do you know what he's given? He's given an experience of the presence of God that puts to rest all of his questions. My ears had heard of you, he says, Lord, but now my eyes have seen you. That's what happens when you fight through the complexity into relationship with God. I wanna put it this way, just to kind of summarize what I've said here, that to press into the complexity of covenant relationship with God, with all the risks it entails, and it does feel risky. When you start getting really honest with God, man, it feels risky. You wonder if you're losing your faith. It might be that your faith has never been more strong than at that point when you were willing to lift up your complaint to God. All the risks it entails to pressing into the complexity is to press into intimacy with all the blessings that intimacy entails. Brothers and sisters, we are, the church is born out of the faith of Israel. And do you know how Israel got the name Israel in the first place? There was a man named Jacob, one of the great patriarchs of our faith, who one night wrestles with God. Here it is in Genesis 32. Let's look at this. 
So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. He doesn't realize it at the time, but he's wrestling with God. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip. So his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, remember, remember, this is God. The man said, let me go for it is daybreak and listen to Jacob. Jacob replies, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob answered, Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Jacob, and the scripture means deceiver. Then he, the man said, your name will no longer be deceiver. You're not this sort of sniveling little weakling anymore, but you stood up, he says, but your, your name will be Israel. Israel means he struggles with God. That is the meaning of Israel. He struggles with God. He wrestles with God because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Next slide. And Jacob said, please tell me your name. And he replied, why do you ask me my name? And then he blessed him there. And so Jacob called the place Peniel. Peniel means face of God. It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. We in the West are too prone to a sanitized view of our relationship with God, where it's all very prim and proper, and we need to observe a special level of decorum to make sure that this relationship works. And here is Jacob wrestling with God in the dirt, blood, sweat, and tears. And when God tries to wrench himself free from Jacob's grip, Jacob goes, you ain't getting away that easy. <laughs> Pulls him back close. And finally, the guy goes, all right, all right, all right. Who am I dealing with here? He says, my name is Jacob. And the man says, your name is not Jacob anymore. Your name is Israel because you have struggled with God and with human beings and you have overcome. And there is blessing that pours into Jacob's life because of it. The Hebrew notion of blessing, beracha, means the power of life. It is in that place of wrestling with God that the power of life breaks in. We find ourselves again waking up in true humanness. Blessing comes. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is not a statement of unfaith. It is David leaning into the covenant again and finding blessing there. Brothers and sisters, what I'm saying to you this morning is that too many of us have a one-dimensional, one-note, thin relationship with God. And I want you to know this morning that the, that the kind of relationship that God is inviting you into with him is complex it is big, it is wide, it is beautiful, and it never at any point, it never at any point demands that you bracket out some of your humanness in order to stand there. Your hurt and your pain and your confusion and your disappointment and your failure and your frustration, do you know where that belongs? Before the face of God, all of it. And if you feel like he's responsible for it, you can say that. He permits it. Not even, not just that he permits it, he invites it. He welcomes it, he wants it. I sat at New Life North yesterday during the funeral service for Deputy Flick, and I thought about the tears and the heartache and the frustration and the joy and all of it that was present in, in that place. And the symbolic value of that could not be overstated to me. I thought, this is where all of this belongs. The worst thing that could happen to any of us is that we take all of those feelings of frustration and abandonment and failure, and we sort of wander off into our own little corner to deal with them. I have kids. I have four kids, Ethan, Gabe, Bella, and Liam. And you know what I want from them? I want them to be honest with me. 
I want them to be honest with me about the things that are not working in their lives. I want them to be honest with me about the things that they're not experiencing life in. And you know what I also want honesty around? I want honesty from them when they feel like I have failed them in some way. You know how heartbreaking it would be? My daughter is eight years old. You know how heartbreaking it would be for me as a father to stumble across Bella's journal when she's 11, 12, or 13 years old and realize that for the last four years she'd been dealing with some little pain from something that I did where she felt like I had mistreated her and she was just kind of working it out in her journal by herself. Bella, darling, come. Come and talk to me. I'll say I'm sorry. I'll repent, I'll fix it, because I want covenant relationship with you as much as you do. Come home. And I think that that's the Lord's invitation to us, always. Come on home, bring it here. If you're frustrated with stuff out there in the world, bring it here. If you're frustrated with me because you feel like I'm not being fair to you, I can hear that too. Guys, I've been walking with God since I was a little boy, and some of the most renewing times in my walk with the Lord have been those times when I finally just worked out the nerve to say, Lord, I, what, so what, what? We're not pretending anymore. I'm not, there's no more mask with you. I feel like you are mistreating me. I feel like the path has not been a fair path. I thought it was supposed to be like this, and it seems like you've turned it into this, and I don't get what that is about. There are times that I'll pour my heart out before the Lord, writing in the journal or, or in prayer, or I'll go out on some mountain trail and I'll run and I'll scream at the heavens. And I find in that place that there's just blessing and wholeness and there's goodness. I remember years ago, I was serving at a church in Oklahoma, and uh, uh, this was about a, a 10 or 11 or so years ago. And I decided to, uh, I was leading a college and career group. So it was a group of 20-somethings. And I decided to create a service that I thought would be helpful to people and also very unusual for them. I decided to create a service of lament one night. And so I preached on it, I prepared them for it, and then invited them to this space. And I just wanted to create open space where people could open up their hearts and really grieve, let it all out. Tell the Lord how they felt like he had been unfair to him, to them, all of that stuff. So we created that space. And as I'm leading the service, guys, it was like heart-wrenching to hear people's cries, groaning, wailing before the Lord. And you know, you kind of have that moment as a pastor where you go, is this like irresponsible? Oh, Jesus, help us. And we got to the end of it. And I remember talking to one of the guys there. And I said to him, I said, so just debrief with me a little bit. How was that experience for you? Was that okay? What was it like for you? And he said to me, he goes, Andrew, that was easily the most painful thing I have ever done in church. And I have never felt so loved by God in all of my life. Do you know why that is? Because he had the courage to open up his whole humanness. He was giving God permission to touch his life in places that he'd been bracketing out for years. You have permission to bring your heartache into the presence of God. And the scripture says that when we're touched with the love of God, you know what also awakens in us? Hope. Hope. Because when the love of God touches us, what happens to us is there's a renewal of our sense of relationship. And we know that the God who is being good to us today will be good to us again tomorrow. Listen to all the, how the psalmist concludes Psalm 22. In the midst of his lamenting and his wailing before the Lord, all of a sudden something pivots for him. And he says, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. 
You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he's listened to his cry for help. And from you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I'm going to fulfill my vows. Like I'm going to make good all my promises before you publicly, God. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. You see what's happening? In the renewal of the covenant, he's waking up again to hope in the God who will put all things right at the end of history. So he says it. Courageous, gutsy doxology erupts from him. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who can't keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn that he has done it. He wakes up to the story of God in the world. And the great tragedy of belonging to the church in some circles is that we are not given permission to be as fully human as we could be in the presence of God. And we bracket out our lament and our pain and our frustration and it all just gets kind of pushed to the side. And do you know how I know that it's okay to bring all of that into the presence of God? This is the surest ground that I have for saying that it's okay to bring this stuff into the presence of God. You know how I know that? Because the Son of God himself from his cross took the words of Psalm 22 on his lips. My God, my God. Now, would you just now stick that in your little theological grid and deal with that for a second? That there was a moment in history when God cried out to God, why have you forsaken me? A moment in history when he who from before all worlds was the eternally begotten son of God in unbroken relationship with his father entered into our history and because of what he experienced, lifted up his voice to the Lord and said, where have you gone? Every visible trace of you has vanished from me. How have you just left me here? Jesus the Lord, listen to me, has lived both sides of this. God has found a way, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has found a way to live both sides of the covenant. Jesus in his death absorbs all forsakenness into himself. And in his resurrection, he becomes the one who leads the great congregation in praise, stands up in glorious day and says, before the great congregation, I will sing your praise. Posterity will serve you, my Father. Future generations will be told about you. When we come to Jesus Christ, we are coming to the one who has lived our story to the uttermost. He knows the dregs of it, and he knows the glory of it, and he's taking, uh, capable of taking your life, and your life, and your life, and your life, and going, here, I actually have a framework that will cause that life, that story, to make sense. He absorbs it in his life, and we find new hope. I'm saying to you this morning that some of you, your relationship with God is dying of politeness. Knock it off. You don't have to live that way anymore. God has created space in himself for all of your humanness to live and move and have its being. Just trust him with it. He knows what to do with it. Let's stand. Holy God. 
we lift up our hearts to you. We make our thoughts known to you. We would give ourselves, this is our desire, is to give ourselves to you in a way that we have not yet to this point in our lives. Come, come. Where faith is dying, would you awaken new faith? Where hope is dying, would you awaken new hope? Where love is dying, would you awaken new love and give us courage to lean into the covenant God who is capable of handling all of our humanness? Do it, we pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.